We're continuing in our short series within series based upon Ephesians uh, chapter 5 verse 21 to chapter 6 verse 33 text. And today I'm going to focus upon the first portion of this text having to do with the relationship between husband and wife, the marital relationship. I mentioned last week that this entire text here from chapter 5, verse 21 to 633 have to do with different types of relationship in the traditional social uh, culture structure of those days. We begin with the husband and wife relationship, then we move on to the parents and children relationship, and then finally to the relationship between uh, masters and slaves. And these were commonly understood a social, a cultural structure in the Greco-Roman world. And was pretty much accepted even among the Jews. The key question here has to do with the question of authority and submission. And that was understood in those days because that was the structural form in those days. So what we need to understand about Paul, his intent is that he's not so much trying to deal with the social structure, not even the authority structure. He's not interested in bringing forth a, a new view of marriage, an egalitarian form of uh, marriage, of government, nor is he trying to help abolish slavery. He's not trying to be prophetic about that. He accepts the status quo. He accepts the structure of those days. But within that context, Paul wants to make a revolutionary statement. So what he's doing actually is taking the concept of authority and submission and he's completely redefining that. And therefore, I believe that Paul's message here is going to have a great implication for all of us, those who are in the position of authority and those who are under authority. And what is Paul's guiding principle? He starts off with this statement in, in chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Could you repeat after me? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's emphasizing mutual submission. And he says this is a sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Then you must be willing to mutually submit to one another. This is a Christian virtue. This is the way of Christ. And we know that based upon this text, now he moves on to the next verse. Verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. That's what it says in NIV, but in the original Greek, there's no verb. There's no verb submit here because it's taking off on the previous verb. It is understood when Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's saying that the first example is that of wives. 
Now can you submit to your own husband as you would do unto the Lord? I know it's a big deal in today's context for a preacher to insist that wives submit to your husbands. And by the way, this is in the context of a family. So we're not talking about all women submitting to all men in the world, even though it was a patriarchal society in those days. It is a big deal in today's world, but in those days it was accepted. It was a norm. Why? Because in those days, women really had no status. They had no rights. They were considered something like a possession, a thing. A wife's duty was at home, bearing children, raising them up, and taking care of the household needs. And men, at whim, they could sign a bill of divorce and drive their wives away if they offend them for something very minor. Now we say, how can Paul allow that to happen? Why did he not protest against that kind of way of life, that kind of way of society? You see, that was not up to Paul to engage and the women's rights movement, uh, nor the rights of uh, those who are like children or workers, those who are under authority. In today's world, in today's context, that is a huge, huge topic. Everyone's talking about rights. But in those days, they had no rights. Slaves had no rights. Children had no rights. Women had no rights. But what Paul does is to exhort the women, yes, you're going to have to submit to your husbands. But how you submit to your husbands, that's the important thing. And Paul says, as you would do unto the Lord, submit to your husbands. You submit to Christ. Amen? We as the church submit to the headship of Christ. So it is the right thing to do for a woman to submit to her husband. Now, I don't know whether you recall, we have some married couples here, but do you remember the wedding ceremony? You know, usually in a wedding ceremony, the bride wears what kind of gown? White gown, right? What does that symbolize? Purity. Purity, right? And what else does she wear? You know, in the traditional, traditional wedding, they wore a veil, right? Now they don't do that, but in, in the olden days, they used to wear a veil, and then when they walked down the aisle, they were very what? Very... Stately? Yes, stately, but not like, uh, you know, some... Queen of England type of stateliness, but they were noble and grandiose, but at the same time, they showed humility, didn't they? And oftentimes, they would just keep their heads slightly bowed with the eyes lowered, 
You know, they're all going like, hmm, hello. <laughs> Nowadays, like, Nowadays. you know, it can be very flirtatious uh, in, in some context. But they didn't do that in those days. It was very humble and a very uh, solemn moment when they are showing their humility, their willingness to submit to this husband of hers. Purity and humility, these are the virtues of a bride. And Paul insists that should be the virtue of a wife to the husband. Submission. But not any kind of submission. Paul qualifies that by saying, out of reverence for Christ. That is, don't so much focus upon your husband, but look unto Christ. And from Christ's perspective, look unto your husband, who this person is. And from Christ's perspective, when a woman looks unto her husband, what does she see? First of all, I believe that in some sense, they see something noble about her husband. See the strength, see the quality. Because the Lord causes them to see something positive about the man. But then what else do you see? Sometimes you see the man's weakness. In comparison to Christ, who is perfect, the man is so imperfect. He falls so short of the glory of God. Well, what is Paul saying here? He's saying, yes, we should show respect. Women, you should show respect to your husband for his greatness, his strength, his potentiality, amazing gift package, and the calling that is upon your husband's life. See that in Christ and give your husband due honor. But then at the same time, see your husband's weakness, his flaws, his insecurity, and show him respect anyway. To boost his sense of esteem and confidence. Because once you cut him down, chop him down, he has nothing to look forward to in the world. You know, the psychologists say that what men are looking for from women are basically respect. And I think it comes from this. If men are given certain measure of authority, and I'm not saying that this applies absolutely the same way in today's society because today's society is very different. We passed through the women's voting rights and uh, we talked about in different denominations women's ordination rights, women's rights to be CEOs and prime ministers and even the president. We passed through that in history. So the context is different, but the measure of authority that is given to men, women, as wives, should respect that and honor that. Both in terms of your husband's strength and weaknesses. That's all I have to say about women here. Okay? Now let's move on to men, because I think the challenge for us husbands how we regard our wives is even more. And that's what Paul is trying to get at. The pressures upon men to really live up to the dignity and honor 
that is given unto them to exercise their authority in a proper way. Let's read from verse uh, 25 to 30. Let's read this out loud together. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church for we are members of his body. You know, those same psychologists who say what men are looking for from their women is respect and honor. They say that what the women are looking for from men is a sense of security and loving care. I agree with that based upon this text. When Christ requires men to love their wives, he's asking them to be responsible. Responsible for their wives. In this passage, we see the term love, agape, being mentioned five times. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Here you don't get any sense that Paul is insisting upon husbands' right to exercise authority to rule and dominate, to boss around. You don't get this sense. He acknowledges the husband's authority, but that authority is not defined in terms of dominance. That headship is defined in terms of responsibility to care for and to cherish, to protect and to serve, and to nurture and to empower. In other words, the husband's authority in Christ is to be responsible to present his wife in the best light. Is that what we men are doing? If we can truly do that, I don't think women have any problem Respecting our authority. As a matter of fact, we can apply this to any kind of authority structure. As a leader, if I can care for those who are underneath me in such such way, they would respect me as a leader. So this authority is not so that we can neglect or mistreat or oppress or overbear over their lives but to be responsible. If authority is given, it requires responsibility. There are so many leaders today in this world and even in the body of Christ who take leadership and headship and authority for granted. I'm given this leadership so I can do whatever I want. I make the final decision. And there's nothing of that kind of notion suggested by Paul. If you're truly a head, if you're truly a leader, if you truly are a person of authority, 
then take responsibility and know what that is about. It is the responsibility to love, to care for, to protect, to make them feel secure. Then when you look at verses 26 to 27, Paul emphasizes something more than simply caring for and protecting. In verses 26 to 27, he says, To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. What is Paul saying here? That man's job is to do something to the wife so that he can prepare her, so that he can nurture her, so that he can build her up to finally be presented unto the Lord Jesus Christ. So here is my theory about marriage. Marriage, I believe, is a tremendous school of nurturing and discipleship in which one's character is formed. Whereby you as the spouse can be the mentor and the discipler of your wife and also wife, your husband, that God has assigned us to each other so that we can help form character. In some sense, we can be the mirror image and we can point out the errors and, and the flaws and the weaknesses and we can help to compensate for that, build that up. Who else is going to do that? Nobody in this world is going to be responsible for Daniel Kim if he flops and makes a fool out of himself. It's only my wife who will point out those flaws to me. You shouldn't say that quite that way. You shouldn't appear to people such a such way. You shouldn't carry on like that. It's the wife who's critique that's going to sharpen me. Or that could even carve me like a sculptor, carving out that form in a meticulous way. I would say this is one thing that I am so grateful to my own wife. I don't know whether she intentionally did it. Perhaps most of them were unintentional. But I took it for the better anyway. And I think I'm so much a better man as a result of she having mentored me. So marriage is a crucial means by which God forms our character and will teach us so many skills. The areas that I lack in terms of gift package, my wife may have so much more. She's my complementary partner. If I'm a yang, she's a yin. It takes both yang and yin to become a harmonious whole. She's an asset to me because she's teaching me an entire world that I am not familiar with. To be honest, until I got married, I didn't really know what relationship was about. I didn't really know what communication was about. And I was terrible at listening. I, I didn't know how to listen. Most men are not good at listening in the first place. And men, because we exercise leadership and we are much more vocal than women sometimes out in the public, 
We are into our self-expressions more. Not so much being receptive and being silent and being reflective. But my wife taught me how to listen. And if I did not listen, she was tough on me. Even to this day, if I don't listen, she will hold me accountable. She will not let that pass. And so I've learned to listen that much more. Having said that, I would say that wives, in order to transform your husband in the likeness of Christ, and that you can play a role in this, please pray for your husband. And pray for spiritfulness, because this is not going to happen unless the Spirit intervenes, transforming that man into the character in the likeness of Christ that you ultimately want to marry. Amen? And you need patience and perseverance. Patience and perseverance. Why do I say this? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, first verse 4, and then look at verse 7. In this section, in chapter 13, Paul pretty much defines what love is. And he starts by saying, love is patient. Then he goes on to say, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. For me, it's very difficult for me to try to memorize all that and try to really put that to practice. It's difficult, but if I just remember the first and the last, that's sufficient. Love is patient. And love always perseveres. And I have everything that's needed for at least the next 10, 20 years to help nurture my spouse. Ladies, remember this. Be patient with your husband. And husbands also, you're also mutually nurturing your wives. Be patient and persevere. Be prayerful, be spirit-filled, and welcome to the school of discipleship called marriage. Amen? Amen? But ultimately, what is the husband's duty? I think verse 25 perfectly states this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is the term agape. What is the definition of agape from any other type of love? We're not talking about errors, some kind of romantic type of uh, feely type of love. We're not even talking about philia that has to do with uh, you know, friendship type of love. We're not talking about storge, a family duty type of love. We're talking about agape which is none other than God type of love. That's the way God loved and God demonstrated His love for us. This was unheard of in those days. And this is the revelation of the New Testament, the agape type of love that God has for us. And what kind of love is agape? It's, first of all, unconditional love that is sacrificial, self-giving it is the other-oriented. In other words, if I have love, then I must give it away. It is not drawing something or expecting something from others, but pouring it out unto them continually. 
And in that sense, love is an action-oriented thing. You might even say love here should be regarded as an active verb. It's an actional thing. It's not some concept. It's not some theory. It's what we do that defines love. And love is costly. Even Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 12, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That's what love is. Are you willing to lay down your life for your wife? And I would say the same thing to wives too. Wives, are you willing to lay down your life for the husband? But already you're submitting to your husband, so that's like death experience for you. But what about the husbands? Where do we learn to die? For the sake of our spouse. We learn to die by exercising love because that's what love is. Love is willing to lay down our lives for that other person. And finally, Paul says in verse 31 to 33, this great statement, he goes back to the whole Genesis text. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And this is the text that I used to favor anytime I uh, perform the marriage ceremony. Because this is exactly the text that defines the covenant of marriage. The state of union between husband and wife. So what does marriage mean? What does marriage imply? It implies that two individuals are now merging together and becoming one. How? Well, first of all, mentally. They start thinking along the same flow and streams of thoughts. And to a degree that after husband and wife, they live together for so long, they kind of pick up on each other. You don't have to say much. You just pick up. I could pick up a lot of things by watching my wife right there, just quietly and just looking at me with her eyes. I can tell thousands of things that she's saying. I, I shape up right there and then. I make some adjustments right there and then just by beholding her eyes. Sometimes if I'm sensitive, I can just pick up her thoughts. What, what's bothering her? What she's so eager to share with me about. We enter into the state of oneness mentally, emotionally to empathize with one another. If she aches, I ache. We ache for each other. We ache together. And spiritual, a sense of spiritual oneness. And even physical, through physical union that only the husband's wives are entitled to in Christ. But the question is this, how can two become one? How can two individuals with their unique set of personalities, background, experiences and gifts and talents, their pathway is so different from you. How can you be together? with your spouses. 
where it is impossible for any two entities to become one apart from the willingness to relinquish or surrender themselves so that they can be one. And that has to do with relinquishing our rights, our self-insistence, sense of self-sufficiency, learning to die to our pride, Do you remember long ago there was what was known as the battle of the sexes? You know, these two tennis players, you know, a man and a woman, they decided to engage in a battle of the sexes. And I think the woman won, right? She lost? Okay, anyway. So the point was they wanted to point out who's stronger, right? And uh, this has been the history between men and women, especially in the 20th century, and so much more in the 21st century. But I believe, ultimately, this is not about gender discrimination or some kind of a male dominance tendency. This has nothing to do with that. I think it ultimately has to do with the battle of the egos, especially in the context of Marriage. Well, at least that's what I figured. I don't, yes. Oh, she did one. Okay, my wife protested and then, yes, yes. Okay, see, this is how my wife corrects uh, everything right away. Thank you so much for the internet technology here. Okay. Right, right. I remember, that was such a long time ago. But what I'm saying is it's not really about the battle of the sexes. It's about the battle of the egos. Okay? At least in the family context. What's the big deal? I'm a man. I'm a woman. So what? Everyone knows that. But isn't it about you and me, our ego struggle, ego fight, not willing to give in, not willing to deny ourselves, not willing to die for the sake of others. That's the problem. That's why we cannot be united. So we need to learn to deny ourselves, die to our self-pride and ego. And then we need to really work on each other to be intimate and become one. How do we do that? First of all, you need to do that physically because we are embodied beings. We are bodily beings. We need to learn to exercise, touch, hug, kisses, and of course, between man and wife, even sex, sexual union, that's acceptable. And through all that, there's a sense of intimacy that happens. I don't go around hugging and, and kissing any other women. I, I really, really don't. I mean, shouldn't do that. Even as a minister who's trying to show affection, have to be very careful. But I do it very specially for my wife and my children. And also mentally and emotionally, we need to bond together. And how do we do that? I think we do it by communication. Spending a lot of time just talking things out, trying to come to a sense of understanding to a point of empathizing with one another. That's the only way that I know how. 
that we can become one mentally and emotionally by talking it out. If you don't talk, you don't spend time talking, there is no way you're going to meld into one. And what about spiritually? Worshiping together, praying together, serving God together. The common sense of destiny will draw you together. Because ultimately the secret to union in marriage is who is your Lord. And if Jesus is your Lord, then you draw near to Lord. As husband and wife, you will draw near to one another. That's the secret to union intimacy. Let the Lord coach you how to be intimate. So that you can become more and more one with your spouse. Then finally, I think this is the bottom line. What is the secret to marriage? It is the same secret that God has been proclaiming to his people, Israel, all throughout the Old Testament days. And what he demonstrated through Jesus Christ, it is what is known as in Hebrew, chesed. Repeat it me, chesed. Yeah, put a little gutter sound. Chesed. Right. And that is defined as steadfast love. Kind of loving faithfulness, a sort of a commitment. Love that is committed. Love that is faithful. Love that is integritous. Love that keeps the vow. Love that keeps the word and the promise. Love that perseveres to the end. Love that never gives up. Love that lasts. And love that always hopes for the best and is willing to work things out. Because not everything's going to happen today. That's one thing that I've learned. If I and Esther, we are willing to work things out no matter what, there's hope. It's not that things have been worked out. It doesn't work out like that instantaneously. But if we're willing to work it out, even though we have strife, even though we have struggles, it's okay. We're working it out as we journey through this life together, but not giving up. When one of the partners gives up, and I've seen that happening all around me, people just immediately rush to the court and sign the paper and gives the bill of divorce to one another. Finally, I would like to take all of you to that particular scene in the wedding ceremony. Not in all wedding ceremonies, but in many wedding ceremonies, they have what is known as the, the unity candlelight ceremony where the candles have already been lighted by the, the mothers of the bridegroom and the bride, and they come in and they light the candle. That has to do with them having birthed you and given you life, nurtured you. So you have all these candles representing you as husband and wife. And then when the, the pastor or the priest is now performing the wedding ceremony, it comes a time when he asks these two to come and take the light that represents you and light a central candle which symbolizes your unity, 
now you're entering into the covenant of marriage. I used to, in the olden days, think that it was so important when they took the light from either side and light the central candle, make sure those candles on the either side, which signifies who you are, to be turned off. So blow off your candle. Now you're melded into one. That's what I used to think. You know what that means? That means now you have a corporate identity as a family, husband, wife, but you don't have a separate identity as Daniel and Esther. And yet, that's what I believed in those days. Now I would do it differently. I would let them maintain the light here because you, you are individuals on your own right. God sees you as that particular, that unique child before his presence. But there's an added identity, a corporate identity, a marital identity. Now you belong to each other to form a family. That's what this is about. So you must bring those light and contribute to this light, which signifies the new family that you are going to form as husband and wife. What do you think about that idea? Anybody affirming this? Anybody getting excited about this? Yeah, go, amen, praise the Lord. Yeah, it just you know, dawned on me that I've been doing it all wrong. I've been saying, you know, turn off your, like, it's that marriage. For the sake of marriage, you're going to die. And then, uh, and then you know, there's just two husband and wives yoked together. <laughs> and there's no life. There's no vitality. That's not the way it should be. The only way two can truly come into one is when in that oneness they can mutually empower one another so that they can go back to their own private life or individual life and the things that they also have that they can truly feel enlightened and inspired. Are we doing that as husband and wife? That we, because we came together, we are so much better, we are so much happier, we are so much more enlightened. We are so much more empowered. Or is the marriage killing us? Killing our individuality, killing our personality, killing our spirituality? This is what I would like to ask you. It should not be this way. And so today I took this text that's related to husband and wife and I tried to impart to you some wisdom that I've gleaned over the years. And a lot of them were very costly lessons that uh, I had to learn. And I'm still not perfect at it, of course not. I'm still working on it. But I want you to work on your marriages together with my marriage to Esther. Let's all work together so that we can become better husbands and wives and future husbands, and wives, for those of you who are not married yet. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.